There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, uh, every Disney movie ever. Uh, I'm Ryan Silverstein. And I'm Megan Dojarski. Uh, and we'll be your co-host on this journey. Uh, this is a very long <laughs> podcast uh, project uh, as we'll be reviewing the development, uh, history, legacy of every theatrically released Disney film, both animated and live action. Uh, so at last count, uh, this project will encompass over 425 films spanning from 1937 through the present. Uh, and this is a project I've had in mind for a couple of years now. Uh, and then the advent of Disney Plus and Disney actually like, you know, putting things in the legendary vault available to the public, whatever we want, um, was sort of an impetus for like, this is a good time to start it. And then a pandemic happened and a bunch of other stuff happened and, Things got sidetracked, but you know, this year it's the hundredth anniversary of the founding of the studio, so maybe an even better time to start this project. Yeah, I think that anniversary definitely uh, counts as a decent justification. Um, so the history of Disney isn't quite a proxy for the history of cinema as a whole, but it does actually reflect a lot more than might be evident at first glance. In addition, Disney has its fair share of innovation, technological advancement, and experimentation. But, of course, all of that flows together to create art that is often viewed as safe or even childish in our modern ideas. Yeah, we will definitely be speaking uh, to and about Disney adults um, <laughs> at some point in the show. Um, but, you know, our main goal here is to trace Disney's rise to prominence, um, you know, both Walt Disney himself and also the studio that he founded. Um, as well as the fallow period after uh, Walt's death all the way up through the Renaissance and, and through what I've sort of been calling the acquisitions <laughs> period, um, you know, and all the way through today. And, you know, there's a ton of writing out there about all of these movies, uh, some more than others, but like Disney as in general is a topic that is, you know, well documented. Um, so we're, we're trying to balance deep knowledge while making this really welcoming and accessible to those who may not know, you know, even some of the, the larger basic facts about Disney's history. By the way, uh, we just want to state from the beginning, we are both longtime fans of much of what Disney has put out. Uh, but part of this project is considering the works themselves critically. No film is perfect, uh, but this will be as even-handed as we think is possible. And that includes being transparent in our biases. The critiques will be fair, and we'll be doing our best to provide the context around each film, as well as what history contributed to why it was created and how it was reacted to, clearly delineating between fact and the opinions that take so much precedence most of the time. 
Yeah, and so this episode is going to be different from all our other episodes because we have to cruise through the first decade of Disney's exist of Disney this Disney Studios existent um, existence rather, and we want to give the background on basically like this is this episode is sort of the road to Snow White, um, and as you can probably tell from the title, uh, it's going to be organized around the Academy Award review of Walt Disney cartoons. Uh, which we'll talk we'll talk more in depth about when we get there, uh, but that is actually the first the uh, full uh, the f- first feature length release of animation uh, at least in the United States. I am not sure about the world at large, um, but so we'll be going chronologically, um, starting at the beginning and going as all the way <laughs> all the way up until whatever the present is when we get there, which could be. Uh, several years several several years <laughs> from now um so going all the way back to the early t- 1920s um you know Walt Disney's path to success was an uncertain one uh, animation was a brand new medium uh, Disney was self-taught in terms of how to make sell animation like he experimented at home in 1920 and early 1921 uh cell animation is the technique of having a hand-drawn image uh, dire- drawn directly onto celluloid as opposed to photographing puppets or cutouts, which were other popular forms of animation at the time. Uh, so you draw on one clear piece of celluloid and then you change, you draw, make another drawing on top of that. And then it kind of looks like a flip book. Um, you know, and anybody who has seen any sort of behind the scenes for traditional hand-drawn animation, you have definitely seen uh, part of the process of cell animation. Um the first success that Disney had came with the so-called the Alice comedies, as they became called. Uh, they were a hybrid of live action and animation. The first short was produced in Walt's home in Kansas City, uh, where he had been producing Laughogram cartoons for a local theater. Uh, and then, even though most cartoons at the time were produced in New York, um, Walt was already thinking about Hollywood. And in 1924, he sold the Alice concept uh, to uh, or Sorry, in 1924, he started to try to sell the Alice concept to major studios. Uh, Margaret J. Winkler gave Disney his big break, and her purchase of the Alice comedies for distribution allowed Walt and his brother Roy to form the Disney Brothers Studio in 1923. Thus, this is the 100th anniversary. Uh, And shortly after, Disney convinced uh, his Kansas City partner of iWorks to also join him moving to Hollywood. So one of the reasons this was kind of a weird choice, uh, as we already said, is that the vast majority of cartoon companies were actually operating out of New York. Actually, a lot of film companies began in New York, but gradually moved over to California. Now, Disney even considered going to New York, um, but he didn't really have the money or the connections in that city to get started. So he primarily chose California because his brother Roy was there, currently recovering from tuberculosis. But that was actually a really good thing for him, because it meant that he was privy to the world of traditional film in a way that most cartoonists were not, which would be a huge part of how he consistently stayed on top of new trends and technologies, which really helped to put him on the map and keep him there all the way to today. Yeah, and part of, I feel like part of Walt Disney's personality that will come up a few times during this episode and will continue far into the future of this podcast up until uh, his death in the 1960s is he gets bored easily. And so 
1927, he was already bored of doing the Alice series. He was already over it. Um, you know, and, and this boredom, I think, does lead to sort of innovation and trying new things and, you know, things like Disneyland, which, you know, so he would find new projects and new things to kind of, you know, hitch his wagon to over and over again over the course of his life. Um, you know, and one of the things about the Alice series was Margaret Winkler's role transitioned to her husband, Charles Mintz. Uh, Mintz was looking for new cartoons to dis- distribute through Universal. Uh, so Walt and Ub Iwerks decided to make a new character that had more personality than Alice. Like the Alice shorts are very cute and very fun, but it really is just the no- like a novelty thing. Seeing a live person with hand-drawn animation around them, you know, is still really novel and fun when we see it today. Uh, and back then, you can, ima- you know, 100 years ago, you can imagine how mind-blowing that might have been. Um, and so Walt described this new character as peppy, alert, saucy, and venturesome, and keeping him also neat and trim. Uh, and thus, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was born. Uh, Walt's direction not only gave Oswald a more distinct personality than rivals Felix the Cat or Coco the Clown, uh, but Oswald and his world emulated live-action films in the way that the images were presented to the camera. Um, the biggest influence on the Oswald cartoons were Douglas Fairbanks adventure films, you know, and so with uh, Trolley Troubles, which was the first Oswald cartoon, which was released in September of 1927, uh, it was a huge, it was a massive success. Uh, I have seen it. It's like, I think it's like two, two and a half minutes long. Uh, it's very fun. It's very sparse, or I'm sorry, it's just over six minutes long. Um, and it's a series of simple uh, pencil and ink drawings. So the whole background is white. There are no background things yet there's no color yet um it really is just drawings on almost like a blank background with a few details around it um but the characters gags and animation are super lively you know for over 90 years ago at this point um there's a gag in there of Aswell removing his foot and rubbing it for luck um that i found very laugh out loud uh you know having a lucky rabbit's foot and that's what makes him the Oswald the lucky rabbit it's a very simple gag but uh it surprised me and made me laugh out loud the first time i watched that so Oswald was a big hit for Disney and actually was a major draw away from the success of competitors Felix the Cat, but the good times weren't supposed to last. Sorry, the good times weren't going to last. In just a few months, the relationship between Disney and Mitz had soured because while Margaret Winkler had pretty much let Disney do what he wanted, Mitz wanted control and he ended up actually poaching many of Disney's animators away from him, slowly drawing them away until he could drop it out from under him and propose a cut in pay for their next contract. Walt did not like being controlled. He had a long history of doing things his own way, including repeatedly lying about his own age to try to join the army and to eventually join the Red Cross. So, Walt being Walt, did exactly what everyone expected, walked away from the deal, telling his wife, Never again will I work for somebody else. And that was a fundamental part of Walt's perception of the working world moving forward. He had to maintain control or else somebody else would ruin his creative vision and try to take him down along with it. However, since Universal and Mint actually owned Oswald, Walt had to come up with something new. So... While he was still finishing the last few Oswald cartoons, he 
uh, iWorks and a few of their other staff members worked in secret on their new project, Mickey Mouse. And just just a quick word to sort of wrap up Oswald's story for at least the time being. Um, his Disney career did take a, a strange turn. U- Universal continued to make Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons after wa- walked away from that deal. Um, they... They aren't super remarkable uh, from what I've seen of them, but, you know, almost 80 years after losing Oswald to Universal, uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger brought him back to Disney. Um, So when ABC lost the rights to broadcast NFL football games, uh, Monday Night Football broadcaster Al Michaels was interested in moving with the football coverage uh, so he could work with his friend John Madden, NBC, which was now owned by Universal. And so part of that deal of the Monday Night Football rights and uh, transitioning from ABC to NBC, uh, they traded Al Michaels, sports broadcaster, to Universal and got back the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Uh, So now there's new merchandise with Oswald. Uh, He was in the Epic Mickey video games uh, that came out about I think about 10 years ago at this point. Uh, He's in the theme parks. He recently they recently made a big Oswald to do for the uh, Lunar New Year since it's the year of the rabbit. So he got like a special costume and some like bright red shorts and stuff. Uh, So Oswald does sort of get his own, you know, happy Disney ending uh, in a way. But of course, you know, Mickey is 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 the star of the show in, in some ways. Yeah, Oswald was a really big part of Disney sorry, Walt Disney, rising to prominence as a cartoonist, but Disney as the company, to what to become even a fraction of what it is today, really came down to the invention of Mickey Mouse. So the character's origins are deliberately complicated, uh, with many people saying that Walt Disney would tell a different story every time he was asked. So the three main stories are, first, that Mickey was created by Disney and his wife Lillian on his way back to California after breaking with Mintz. He had flied out to New York, did everything he could to save his character, and then angrily got on a train and scribbled up a new character, Mortimer Mouse, who his wife said, I don't know, Mortimer? He changed it to Mickey and the rest was history. Alternatively, there's an argument that Mickey was based on a pet mouse that Walt had on his desk, were kept near him during his time in Kansas City, as he was growing as a cartoonist and as an artist. Now, while both of those might be true in some connections, the most likely theory is actually that Mickey was the shared brainchild of Disney and his closest collaborator, Ub Iwerks, when they went back to the studio, working at nights, working at Disney's own house, to make sure that they kept the secret away from Mintz, and they got to keep the amazing character Mickey Mouse. And you can also see why it's important for the Disney company to put Walt as front and center to that story as they can. Uh, and really, you know, I, I feel like the canonical mythological Mickey origin is the like Walt and Dillian on the train. Like that's the, that's the story the company tells most often. Uh, but I'm glad that we're highlighting that there's there's a little bit more to it than that perhaps. Uh, so Mickey would go on to de- make his debut in 1928 in a short called Plain Crazy, uh, and his third appearance in Steamboat Willie would be the first cartoon to use synchronized sound. So this was one of the first examples of Walt really jumping onto new technology. 
So if you know anything about the history of film, we started out with silent film. And then the whole world changed when the movie The Jazz Singer came out. Now there's a lot of complexities around The Jazz Singer, but Walt saw how popular it was, how important it was that sound had been added, and he knew that it would be vital to find a way to make sound a natural complement to gags and animation. While most cartoonists and animators were very scared, a little bit wary of adding sound, he believed that it was a great way to help build on things. And as we all know, if you watch a horror movie or a romance or anything like that, the soundtrack is such an integral part, and that was something that Disney figured out very early on. He also emphasized the importance of personality in his characters, explaining that the popularity of Mickey Mouse was actually more to do with Disney's favorite actor, Charlie Chaplin, than anything specific about the stories. As he explained, we thought of a tiny bit we thought of a tiny bit of a mouse that would have something of the wistfulness of Charlie Chaplin, just a little fellow trying to do the best that he could. So, you know, from there, kind of the rest is history. So Mickey is a runaway success. Uh, Walt and Ub find incredible popularity with their cartoons, but Walt was always going after more. Um, so this brings us to our main topic for the episode, uh, the Academy Award review of Walt Disney cartoons, which again, the first time there was a feature length, uh, a feature length film of animation released to the American public, sort of. Uh, so this was came out in 1937 to sort of test the waters for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which we'll be talking about uh, in our next episode. Uh, Disney compiled the five short films that had won the first ever five Oscars in the new category, best short best short subject cartoons. So we'll discuss each of those five, uh, which are all from the Silly Symphony series, as well as one additional that is essential to the creation of Snow White and a Mickey short that is a personal favorite of mine. And I think also kind of paves the way for some of the other things that we'll be talking about later. Um, so jumping back from 1937, uh, back to the early 30s. Uh, so Mickey is a runaway success. Disney is producing dozens of cartoons a year. Uh, Kansas City composer and longtime friend of Walt Disney, Carl W. Stalling, urged Walt to create a new series of animated short films in which the animation and the action were designed to match the music. Uh, the work by Stalling and others on the Mickey cartoons was to write the music to the already completed animation. So they would watch the cartoon, they would write the music to the uh, work of the animators. Stalling's suggestion of using the music first made the Silly Symphony series unique. So in Mickey Shorts, the sound follows the action. And in film, film lingo, uh, to quote-unquote Mickey Mouse a sound is to match a sound exactly to the character's movement. Uh, for example, to have a character climbing a ladder with an ascending xylophone, like do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Like, that's a very Mickey Mouse thing. Whereas in the Silly Symphony, other kinds of music are used to create the feeling within the animation that's been drawn. One of the big things that they kind of developed over time with this is, at first, they tried out, we've created this animation, now an orchestra just has to make it work. But they found that one of the better ways to do it was to start with the music and really let that push the action, which is something that we're going to see a lot more as we're going through these silly symphonies. 
Stalling is actually credited with both the composition and the musical arrangement of the first in the series in 1929, The Skeleton Dance. This was actually a very controversial uh, short, although today we would see it as kind of cute and Halloween-y, it was actually viewed as very grotesque and kind of horrific at the time to have, you know, a skeleton moving around and playing music on its body, things like that. Uh, but Stalling would go on to create a score that Disney handed to his animators, and they had to make it work. Stalling left Disney at about the same time as Ub Iwerks, later. Uh, thankfully, Stalling left a little bit um, less contentiously but, than Iwerks, but we may talk about that later. But Stalling would go on to become the music director at Warner Brothers, and he's credited for scoring over 600 animated films, including classics like The Rabbit of Seville, Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century, and Hollywood Steps Out. Yeah, there's a lot of animation. Disney really is a pioneer, and there's a lot of people who worked under Disney who then went on to do stuff at other animation studios and really, you know, Disney was driving the whole art form forward, especially in this period. Uh, and so while Mickey Mouse was very popular with the public, the Silly Symphonies were like the critical darlings. They were like Disney's like art house <laughs> sort of cartoons uh, in a way. There's a lot of them are more abstract with the theme um, and music that, that set up. Um, Many of them are a bit more abstract with a theme and music uh, that then set up various stories and gags along that theme. So early entries in the series tend to focus on inanim inanimate objects coming to life, like skeletons and trees that we'll talk about in a minute, and then later expanded to include adaptation of folk tales and other pre-existing works. In the words of Walt Disney, they started as an experiment. We used them to test and perfect the color and animation techniques we employed later in full-length feature pictures like Cinderella, Snow White, and Fantasia. The through line to Fantasia is especially strong, which we'll of course talk about in an upcoming episode. But keep in mind the challenge of introducing an entire world, new characters, and a story all in a runtime of five to eight minutes. And from 1929 through 1939, Disney would release 75 installments of the series. Uh, some of which are on Disney Plus today, some of them are not, <laughs> for various reasons, I think. Um, so the first one, uh, this was the first cartoon to ever win an Academy Award, unless it's first up in our list uh, in the Academy Award review of Walt Disney cartoons. Um, and that is 1932's Flowers and Trees. Uh, it was the first commercially released film to include full color, three strip technicolor. So just a word on this without getting too, too deep in the weeds. Uh, color was often used in film before this period. Um, there were previous iterations of the Technicolor process, and before that, there were a lot of early, especially silent films, uh, that color was hand-painted onto, uh, uh, onto the film itself. Uh, so especially the works of Georges Millais, um, you know, or oftentimes silent films were tinted different colors. Uh, so if you watch like Nosferatu, when it's nighttime, it has a blue tint, and in the daytime, it has sort of a brown tint to it. Uh, however... The brightness, depth, and saturation of color from a three-strip Technicolor process was unparalleled at the time. So by separating the colors in a certain way, which was developed by Technicolor, uh, the colors were brighter, more vibrant, and more kind of filled in. They just looked like heavier, I guess is, the, is maybe the best word uh, for it. And so 
Disney, uh, Walt Disney negotiated an exclusive contract with Technicolor for this process that lasted until 1935, which gave him an advantage over rival cartoon studios. Uh, while the color process made each of these shorts more expensive, it became an advantage when it came to both critical acclaim and box office success. Uh, technical innovation at Disney was a core value of the studio and push, really pushed the medium forward over the decades. One of the kind of interesting things there is essentially how the Walt Disney Company worked at this time is that Walt had these grand ideas and then his brother Roy, who actually knew how to work with money, would try to get, convince him not to do it. Uh, and this was especially true with Technicolor. Uh, Roy was convinced that it wasn't going to work, that the colors would flake, that they wouldn't show up properly, and Walt basically forced him to do it anyway. Now, while it did end up being extremely expensive, they actually had to throw away most of their designs for flowers and trees that they had made before color, it ended up genuinely revolutionizing the place of cartoons in the world of cinema. And this would be something that he continued to do as he tried new things. So as we already said, Flowers and Trees won the first ever Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Award for cartoons, which was really significant because it elevated them from time fillers at the start of traditional films. So think uh, previews that we would kind of skip over today some people. I suppose it depends on your take on uh, movie theater etiquette. Um, but, you know, the things that would come at the beginning to distract people before the real film happened to actually their own art form and eventually films in their own right. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting. Like one of the things I think that we often forget about when it comes to the way that people watch movies in theaters that it wasn't until the fifties when you like bought a ticket for a certain time to go to a movie to watch it from start to finish. Um, you know, especially in the thirties and forties, you would buy a ticket and you would walk in and you would come in during a cartoon. You might see a newsreel or two. You would. Sometimes you would walk in and, you know, the the feature film would be halfway over and you would see the back half of it. You would stay through the stuff in between and then watch the first half. And then you might be like, oh, yeah, now I remember this part. I can leave. Uh, and so it's a very <laughs> different movie going experience in this time than we have today. Uh, thanks in part to Alfred Hitchcock. But that's that's a story for another time. Um, and this this has a very simple story to it. It's not very long. It's a simple love story between two trees. Uh, there's an evil sort of hollow rotted out tree that tries to steal the female coated tree from the protagonist tree. <laughs> and then in retaliation for the, um, the hollow tree not getting the girl, he starts a fire, which disturbs the entire forest. Um, the flames chase everybody around. There's a bunch of different gags with the flowers turning into bells to warn people of the fire and then scooping up water and trying to spray it on the little, you know, firelings that are sort of running around, uh, you know, that, that, that rises up and disturbs the birds. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very simple. Um, but I think what I appreciate about it the most, uh, other than the color is sort of the creativity and the use of the different designs and the way, like how, uh, especially the flowers, I feel like come across as very expressive but you can still always tell what kind of flower they're supposed to be yeah um so this one was an interesting one for me because it actually took a little while for me to really connect with it 
And I think that's just because modern audiences are so used to starting with the narrative at the forefront. For instance, if I were to walk into a movie or if I were to watch a TV show, if it took, you know, a third or a quarter of the runtime just to kind of have the characters waving and dancing, I'd probably get a little bit bored. Um, but it was really interesting because once the story began, once the narrative really developed, it really drew me in in a way that is still really kind of capturing today. The music is perfectly set to the action, and I never could have guessed that this was the first colored cartoon, because there really aren't any beginner's mistakes to speak of. Yeah, I feel like you can really tell that there was a lot of time and thoughtfulness and consideration put it put into the making of this one, uh, especially because of you know the color process and you know Walt being a very hands-on producer at this time he was you know literally over the shoulders of of everybody he could be <laughs> at the studio making sure everything mm -hmm. was perfect um you know really because uh, to your point Walt, not not a uh, a spendthrift he really was like i want to make it right i want to make it the best that we could make it the money will sort itself out later because roy will handle it for me uh <laughs> and so you know i think one of the things that i want to talk about here is that it's not just the you know the use of the color and this new color process, but it's the way that Disney, uh, as the studio and you know all the animators working on these things, the way that they use the color to convey sort of both realism and metaphor uh, that made these really popular with both general audiences and you know early film critics like the Academy is what we can point to as like you know Mickey Mouse cartoons weren't winning these Academy Awards; it was these silly symphonies. So there's you know, exaggerated blushing with like rosy red cheeks, you know, characters turning blue from speed or cold, you know, and other examples that we think of as sort of like the language of cartoons, like th these guys were inventing it, they were making it up, uh, because they didn't exist before th this time, really, you know, other than stuff in comic strips, which obviously did have access to color. Um, but putting that in motion and how those things actually show up in uh, in animation was was brand new. Uh, there's no dialogue in Flowers and Trees. All of the character emotions are conveyed just by the animation. Um, it's a little bit more abstract and surreal than the other shorts in this program. And like, you know, this is this is as psychedelic as Disney gets in like the 30s at least. There's always these push towards that abstraction and it really comes to the forefront with, you know, stuff like Fantasia and later like Alice in Wonderland. Um, but I think the character work is really strong, especially because there's no dialogue and everything is, is the mood is set by the music and the characters are set by the motion and you know, right away, this is the good tree. This is the bad tree. <laughs> this is the woman tree, you know, and all that is just through the design work. Uh, Flowers and Trees was directed by, uh, Bert Galay, who was the second animation director after of iWorks. Um, and so he, over the course of his career, directed 48 cartoons during his time at Disney when he worked there just between 1929 and 1934. Um, and then he also returned a little bit later in 1936. Uh, so he directed both. He was the credited director uh, of the first two Academy Award winning uh, cartoon shorts ever. Um, and it's just amazing to think about the output of 48 cartoons in five years. I mean, they're short, but that's a lot of... Because each of these, you know, other than the, the Mickey cartoons, um, I mean, so other than Mickey Mouse and some of the original characters, 
they, these were all new designs that they were coming up with. So they would come up with stories and jokes and characters and all that kind of stuff from scratch every time. And to do 48 of them in five years is just amazing to, to think about. Definitely. iWorks is definitely one of those uh, figures that I don't know that Disney would exist without him. Uh, he and Walt Disney met in Kansas City. They worked together briefly, even made their own studio. Uh, it ended up being, I believe, iWorks and Disney, not Disney, Disney and iWorks, because they thought it was uh, going to be mistaken for an eye care company. Uh, fun fact. Um, but, you know, Disney brought him in because he knew that iWorks could do amazing work. He could take the fantasies in Walt's mind and put them on paper or cells better than Disney ever could. And it's really kind of important to keep in mind that Though Disney is the name on the studio, iWorks really was that crucial to those first, you know, five, even ten years where his style really kind of dominated how things worked. Um, but going back to Flowers and Trees, one of the things that I do want to really focus on is personality. Instead of just actions or even how the characters are drawn. It's incredibly easy to see how each of the tree character feels in each given moment, in large part because each character had their own distinct movements. The swaying of the female tree, the kind of stomping of the evil tree, the almost chivalrous uh, movement style of the protagonist, which really just established their base personality and then really showed how it changed as the conflict escalated. You know, we start out with just trying to win a girl, but very shortly we're dealing with the entire forest trying to burn down. Um, so you really see how those characters are alive. And many other cartoons from this time didn't do that. Most of those focused exclusively on jokes and action for their own sake. The character didn't really matter, or they would have one stock character who was in everything. But Disney explained in the Disney Handbook that until a character becomes a personality, it cannot be believed. Unless people are able to identify themselves with the character, the actions seem unreal. Now, obviously, the literal actions in this short are unrealistic, but the battle to save the love interest from a wicked villain is a classic part of human storytelling, and it's easily on par with live-action films of its time and even, in many ways, our own time. Now, I want to take a minute here to, to give my own personal uh, opinion on this, because I have one nitpick, uh, and feel free to call me out on it because it's stupid, but my one struggle with this short was the rules of the story world. The three main characters are trees. The flowers are alive. The birds seem anthropomorphized. But the villain used dead limbs to start the fire. That is, dead tree limbs. I understand it's nitpicking, but I would have preferred that they made fire another way, so I didn't have to consider whether, like, these were meant to be corpses of other trees the evil tree had vanquished. I'm sure that's silly, but in today's world where we can critique every little detail, I'm calling it a plot hole. 
what were some of your thoughts on this uh, short? Yeah, I mean, my answer to that would be like, well, he's evil. So, I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe that is what it's supposed to be. Uh, and it's just further <laughs> underlining how, uh, you know, abhorrent his behavior is uh, to everyone else in this in this woods. Um, yeah, I, I, I rewatched this today and, you know, I really I'm always it's always better than I remember it. It's always more engaging than I remember. There's a bit more story uh, than I tend to think about because uh, I tend to think when I recall it, I tend to think of, you know, the, the, the birds and the flowers and the music. But it really is those character personalities that I think, you know, sell it and keep it engaging over the whole course of uh, this short. And I think it's worth watching for anybody who hasn't seen it. Because, again, it's short. So it's not going to take up a lot of your time. And now that it's on Disney+, Plus, the, the version on there looks is really high quality. Uh, the colors really pop. You know, and the other thing I thought about was some of the, the music cues, like the wedding march music and that mm. sort of like... I don't. I actually don't even know what the piece of music is called, but it's that. It's that. Um, it's that like early morning music that's sort of become just like a cliche. Uh, and I was thinking about like I wonder, and I didn't have time to to look into it, but it made me think about how if these, if Disney was inventing those things as tropes here. Or if, you know, from vaudeville and, and other kinds of entertainment, those pieces of music were already immediately recognizable to audiences and used for those purposes. So, like, they heard, you know, like, the, hearing the wedding march reinforces that, like, oh, you know, the main protagonist tree and the girl tree are getting together and, you know, it's going to be a wedding and it's romantic and all that kind of stuff. And it, the music obviously is conveying a large part of that. Uh, but it was interesting to see them sort of, you know, there's certainly original music in here, here and there, but they definitely rely on some of those familiar themes to move the story forward. Yeah, I definitely think it was probably a combination of both, that they used these tropes that already existed, and then they, you know, created so many of them themselves. I mean, at this point in time, intellectual property laws were mm, pretty hazy. So a lot of times you could kind of claim these things that already existed. I mean, so many of the Mi Mickey Mouse uh, cartoons and some of these silly symphonies were based predominantly on vaudeville and uh, even on minstrel shows that so much of it just kind of blurred together into just all of the culture that was available at that time. So I think that, you know, it definitely relied on those, you know, the wedding sound, as you said, or I liked that um, they briefly played a funeral dirge <laughs> when they had knocked down the evil character. Um, so I think those were defined. But some of those other elements like the, you know, early morning and all of that, I think that really was the first time they did it. And they built the cliche from the ground up. Yeah, it's just really interesting to see that develop. And it's so rewarding to see it develop with something that is very watchable and entertaining today. Like nothing like that would really come out today the way that it is. Because like you said, we're, we're so story driven and so plot driven these days. But I think I think this whole I think Flowers and Trees overall holds up for what it is. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to the second short in this package, uh, which is. The Three Little Pigs, um, also directed by Bert Gallet, um, 
And it's the most popular and acclaimed short to come out of Disney in this era, right up there with like the body of Mickey Mouse's work <laughs> up to this point. Um, and, you know, Walt Disney himself and some other people have called it the most successful animated short of all time. Uh, so obviously it's based on the well-known folktale. The film retells the stories of the three little pigs and the big bad wolf. Um, and to me, this is one that that also does hold up, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about our opinions later. Um, but there's a, a bunch of firsts in this. This is kind of like the landmark one. Like if you're only going to watch one of the shorts we talk about today, I would probably say The Three Little Pigs would be my pick. And one of the big reasons is that uh, this is the first short where uh, the Disney studio created a story department. Uh, so before this, they would get all the animators together and everybody would pitch like oh, this joke or this gag or this character uh, or this should be the background. And it was kind of a, a sort of a free for all. And, you know, the best ideas kind of won out. Um, and here they started to bring together a committee of people who would shape the scenes, characters and themes for the whole production. Uh, and in part, this was to keep things more consistent and to plan things out in advance. And so these meetings would typically involve its members pitching ideas to each other. They would draw sketches and doodles. They would act out scenes and they would each sort of try to compete with each other to, to win out of who could get their most of their material into the final short. And the Disney story department would, um, the Disney story department would evolve over time. Uh, and at their best, they would break down the shorts into their smallest details. Uh, so Ted Sears, who was the first head of the story department, actually invented storyboarding, uh, which again, if you've watched any behind the scenes stuff for not just animated films, but a lot of, you know, especially large blockbusters with complicated special effects are storyboarded. Um, so a storyboard is a rough drawing or a sketch that break down a scene from a film in order. Um, and it'll show like you know, this is where the characters are going to be in the scene. It will try to convey a sense of motion. It may have some like scribbled notes on it, um, but they allow the animators to get a sense of the flow of the overall story. Uh, like I said, camera placement is a huge part of this. Um, and it seems like a simple and kind of obvious idea to outline a visual medium using a visual guide, but it hadn't been done before. Um, you know, film was still very new. Animation was also very new. And this was really the cutting edge because as the stories got more complex, you know, here now we have four main characters, the three pigs and the wolf and tracking where they are and where they appear in the frame as more and more people are needed to make these shorts. The storyboards become more and more um, important to making the whole thing come together the way it's supposed to when all the work is actually done. Um, and this really signaled a move from the development of the shorts from being very gag driven to very story focused. Um, and, you know, this also, again, is an important step on the road to making a feature length animated film like Snow White, because, you know, the story of the Three Little Pigs is very well known. The structure is there. You have the, you know, the uh, pig who makes his house out of straw, the pig who makes his house out of sticks, the pig who makes his house out of brick, the wolf shows up, blows down the houses. We all know the story. Um, but letting the animators visualize and guide the guide them in their work is also really key for animation because you can't really edit, you know, doing a different take for a character. Like, it's not like, you know, when you film an actor and you're like, okay, we're going to do the same scene, you know, four or five times. And then you edit it together using what you think is the best work from each. 
revising an animated film like that is just throwing out drawings and redoing them, which could require hundreds or thousands of new drawings, depending on how much you need to change. And so storyboards are kind of a way that animation edits in reverse. So you plan out the whole thing and you sort of lock picture before you actually make the final product. So that way, you know, you're not wasting any work because it's expensive, it's labor intensive, it takes a long time. Um, I think oh, that, go ahead. sorry, yeah, go can ahead. I cut in? Yes, go ahead. I think that one of the other things that kind of explains this development is you've got to be thinking about the company size. You know, when they were starting out with Mickey Mouse, thanks to uh, Mince's hostile takeover, they really only had like five people working. So one or two of them could come up with an idea and they did the job. But by this point, once they were really putting out the, you know, artistic level silly symphonies, they had hundreds of workers. They needed everyone to know where they were going. And that's a much harder thing to do if you don't have kind of a roadmap, which I think is kind of why this idea came to be. Because they needed everybody to really be on the same page with where it was going and how they were going to get it there. Yeah, exactly. Um, another another piece of the Three Little Pigs success uh, is the music of Frank Churchill. Uh, Churchill arrived at the Disney studio in 1930 after working as a pianist in both movie theaters and on Los Angeles radio station KNX, which again, it's kind of crazy to think that like radio at one point was live and not just like people playing records. It was <laughs> like a guy in the studio playing the piano and you were listening to it in your house. Um, and so not only did Churchill work on many of the silly symphonies, but he also worked on a few of the early features, including Snow White and Dumbo. Um, and, you know, the popularity of the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf in this is sort of like the 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 seed of the idea that, like, you know, growing up in the 90s during the Renaissance, like, that's why we get these, like, soft rock versions of Beauty and the Beast and A Whole New World uh, is because radio hits were a way for Disney to keep the... Uh, the film alive in the minds of people, especially in the days before television, before VHS, where the only way you could see this was to go to the theater. The music was a key part of keeping that the memory of that film alive sort of in the heads of the audience after they saw it. And so um, the success of the song that he wrote with Anne Rennell for this film, which is Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, really did change the Disney studios forever. Uh, the song was a smash hit beyond even the movie itself. Uh, sales of the sheet music were a new source of revenue for Disney, and popular co cover versions kept the film in the minds of the public longer than just the film's runtime. Um, and the popularity of the song, in turn, had theater managers keep running Three Little Pigs long after other cartoons had come out because the demand was just there that people wanted to see this over and over again. Uh, a quick word on Anne Ronell. Uh, she was a rare woman working in the music industry at this time, and her work ranged from Tin Pan Alley standards uh, to her Oscar-nominated song and score for the story of G.I. Joe uh, later on in 1945. Uh, so she's definitely a person I want to learn more about uh, as a name that came across in this process. Uh, and then as the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf became popular, it itself has a huge cultural footprint. Um, so 
uh, during the initial release of Three Little Pigs, it became a rallying cry against fear in the Great Depression, where the Big Bad Wolf sort of represented the economic turmoil. And the song was used as sort of a rallying cry that, you know, we're not afraid of this economic situation. We're going to get through it. Um, Later on, it became an anthem for those worried about uh, Hitler's expansionary policies in Europe. Uh, And then a year after uh, The Three Little Pigs uh, film came out, it was sung by Clark Gable in It Happened One Night, um, which was the first film to win every major uh, category at the Academy Awards. So um, uh, picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. Um, And it's, it's since been covered by... Uh, Duke Ellington, Barbara Streisand, LL Cool J. Uh, the song title also is what gave uh, Edward Albee's play the title Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is a play on this song, which is crazy to think about. Um, so, Megan, I wanted to ask you, what, what what do you think of Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? The song mm-hmm. specifically? Mm-hmm. It was interesting because I actually don't think I'd ever heard the song before I was watching it today. Um, So Who's Afraid Of, to me, is always a callback to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But the song was really interesting, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, Uh, I think because it became this kind of uh, calling card for the wolf, but also this idea that you could mock away a scary thing. You know, they they were mocking the wolf, but then they were scared by the wolf. Um, But then the idea that once they had the upper hand on the wolf, they could just, you know, the pigs themselves could sing this song and mock the idea that the wolf really had any power at all. Uh, So I think tied into the story, it's such a powerful thing. And then on its own, it still holds on to that idea of defiance against a force that absolutely should win. I mean, everything we know about animals, sorry, the pig should lose to the wolf. Uh, Obviously, this story was written a long time ago, but it's kind of a defiant anthem. And like you said, we saw that kind of reverberate through history. Yeah, and and the song is definitely an earworm. Like I, I was whistling it while I was uh, making dinner after watching this again today, just without even realizing it because it's, it's such a catchy tune and it's so easy to imagine, you know, people singing it just, you know, in sort of casually, you know, at home after seeing the movie, you know, on, on their way home or whatever. And the more people that saw it, the more people would know the song. And, you know, it's, um, you know, we're in the sort of post monoculture world now, but this is sort of the beginning of uh, sort of, you know, a national American culture where people are seeing the same movies, you know, across the country. Uh, you know, we're starting to get mass communication with radio and things. And so it's, it's, it's cool that this is one of the, I think, big things that where that really starts to sort of take off and develop and you have things that are hits across the country. Um, you know, and the short itself goes back to the original story of the three little pigs that we're all probably familiar with that it's very much about the value of hard work with, uh, and the pigs here are specifically named after the instruments, uh, that they play. Well, two of the three of the pigs are, um, Pfeiffer pig and Fiddler pig, uh, Pfeiffer pig builds his house out of hay. Fiddler Pig builds his house out of sticks. And then uh, the pig who builds his house out of bricks is is later named Practical Pig. 
um, which comes up later. Um, but they're, they're all brothers, you know, they build their houses, the wolf blows down the first two, the brothers show up at the third house instead of getting eaten, which is a change from the most common version of the original story. Um, you know, and obviously with brick, the brick house is wolf proof. So the wolf is not able to, uh, to blow it down. Uh, the pigs here are voiced by Dorothy Compton, Mary Motor and Pinto Colvig. And the underlying character designs of the pigs are basically the same. Um, they have different voices, they have different clothes, they have different instruments, but the actual drawing underneath the design of the pig body and face itself is basically identical. Um, and that's one of the big achievements here is by using these small details and, and the different voice actors, the different instruments, uh, they're really able to create a distinct personality for each of these pigs, or at least for the two pigs who are, uh, want to laugh and play all day. And then their brother who is, you know, building his brick house and not taking any chances. Um, you know, and to me watching this, you know, some 90 years later, uh, it feels modern. Um, you know, it, it's a little simplistic in terms of the animation style. Um, it's certainly evolved from flowers and trees, uh, but it's still not up to par with what we think of hand-drawn animation in its heyday. Uh, but you know, here the colors are vibrant. It's really, it's got a really brisk pace. Like this is not one that takes its time to set things up. Uh, and the repetition of the story, you know, of the original story, the way that's done here, I think is really satisfying because again, you get this really catchy song. You kind of know the structure. So you're already sort of anticipating how this is going to play out. And then the little changes they make and you know, the sort of, uh, Disney particulars really make it stand out. Um, I also really like the, a little sort of the some of the details that again you might not notice on first viewing uh, and so this is one where I can see people wanting to see it again because somebody would point out like oh did you realize that in the brick house the piano is also made out of bricks or that in the background on the walls there's a portrait of sausage links labeled dad uh, there's a picture of a football with like an uncle's name underneath it um, and so, like, there's, like, this adult sense of humor that's kind of underlying this whole story because, again, like, they, this is before cartoons were, quote-unquote, kid stuff. They were, you know, for everybody. And so they were aimed at kids and adults, I guess, somewhat equally. Yeah, I, um, I, I really love the posters that were up in each of the three pigs' houses. Uh, so the first pig had, I believe, pictures of dancing and dancers. Uh, the second one, ironically enough, had a bunch of boxing gloves, uh, although he, he turned out to be a bit of a coward in the end. And then the third, it was all family pictures, but it's the mom with like <laughs> 10 kids suckling and, and the uh, dad and uncle as, as various uh, pork products. Yeah, it's it's definitely that kind of dry humor that's not really something we would necessarily think of as Disney or cartoon in general. Uh, and that does go back to who was watching it. I mean, one of the first big cartoons to ever take off um, that was specifically with, um, give me one second, that was specifically with Felix the Cat um, was literally about the cat getting kicked out of his house, trying to go to his girlfriend's house, finding out he had a bunch of kids to take care of, and committing suicide. Jeez. So some of these cartoons got very dark. Um, 
but then, you know, they had fun, upbeat music, things like that, that were brought in through Disney's era to make it more family friendly. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting with kind of this whole short is that it's a story that everybody knows. I mean, Walt Disney today is known so much for the princesses, and we're definitely going to talk about them as we move forward. But really, Disney was hooked on these classic tales and what made them so appealing to so many people. And that's something that I think we see in each of these really slam dunk shorts. We see the things that are going to become popular in later Disney movies and even culture as a whole. You know, the song is catchy, but it's really fun to see the wolf be punished. You know, it's fun to see him being beaten up as he's trying to deceive the pigs. It's fun to see him accidentally uh, almost get cooked. You know, it's this cartoon violence that became really prominent later on with figures like Tom and Jerry and Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. We like to see the bad guy get hurt. And in ways that they survive, we're not seeing, you know, the murder of the wolf here. But it kind of creates this interesting dynamic where we've got clear morals. And an interesting thing with this one is that while at first it seems like the moral is to never play, the practical pig is a little bit mean at the start. You know, his brothers are like, hey, let's sing and dance. And he's like, I don't get to sing. I don't get to dance. I don't get to play because I'm taking care of things and making a good house. And he's kind of unlikable for that. But then once he lets in his brothers and the fact that he has a piano in his house actually suggests that leisure is a good thing, is something that's important to him, even if the piano is made of brick, and he plays around with his siblings. So really the moral is that as long as leisure and fun take place after sta safety standards and work have been taken care of, they're actually a pretty good thing which is a little bit of a bend from the original uh, moral of this story. Yeah, and I like that they put their own twist on it. You know, one of the things I really thought about on rewatch was, you know, the, the wolf puts on the sheepskin and puts himself in the basket and he mm -hmm. tries a very poor impression of a sheep's voice and, and the pigs don't fall for it, which I really appreciate it because they're already sort of playing with that subversion of expectations that I think becomes kind of a, a hallmark of, you know, Looney Tunes humor, uh, where like, you mm -hmm. know, the, especially when they start doing like fourth wall breaks and stuff with like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, where they're like, I know that that's really, you know, and they're like, explain to the audience that they understand mm -hmm. what's going on. And then in the Looney Tunes version, there's some big twist, you know, where something unexpected happens or whatever. But here, it's nice to see that even early on, they're like, oh, we're not just translating this story to the screen the way that we all know it, we're adding our own flair and our own touch to it to bring out different sides of the humor, you know, really hit the message in a couple of different ways that are unique to this version. Absolutely. Um, there is one aspect of the film we have to talk about that did not age well. Uh, so in the original version, uh, well, in, in the film, there's a scene where the wolf disguises himself as a door-to-door -door salesman as a way to get into, uh, you know, the, the pig's house. Uh, in the original version, it was a Jewish uh, peddler stereotype that speaks in like an exaggerated Yiddish type accent and speech pattern. Um, you know, it's, I have seen the original footage. It is 
somewhat shocking actually that because it is so over the top um you know of course stereotypes and racial and ethnic caricatures are all over the history of all film um and you know we're not even going to be able to provide an exhaustive list um but they are going to be part of our ongoing exploration where they happen in these movies that we're going to be covering um and this one was actually removed uh, from the film way back in 1948 and they reanimated that segment of the wolf with as a non-semitic uh door-to-door salesman who is putting himself through college as a big change from the original gag and even by the time this was being shown on tv and now on disney plus like that's the only version that you can see uh the original footage is on youtube that has been put out there for you know, historical purposes uh, by people who want to preserve that this was a part of the history of the film. Um, And like I said, it is really shocking. And it's interesting that the uh, Hays Code were the people who demanded they change it for the 1948 uh, re-release, which obviously is after World War II. Anti-Semitism is very much on the top of people's minds. Um, but it's just it's it's one of the things that we're going to be tracking over the course of this as, you know, racial and ethnic caricatures and stereotypes work their way into uh, some of these Disney um, uh, cartoons. Um, you know, among the Silly Symphony as a whole, uh, Three Little Pigs probably has the highest profile legacy, which makes sense given its original success. Um you know, beyond the song, the characters cameoed in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988. Um, they are occasional. Well, they were more prominent in the Disney theme parks when Disneyland opened in the 50s and when Disney World opened in the 70s. They occasionally appear in the parks here and there. Um, in the Disneyland ride, the storybook land canal boats, uh, their homes, like models of their houses, are part of that ride, uh, which is a nice, a nice tribute. Uh, and there's a, in the Disney California Adventure Park, there's a cafe, um, sandwich shop named Fiddler, Pfeiffer, and Practical Cafe. Um, and so, you know, and again, even to this day, sometimes they come out for meet and greets with park guests. So, you know, this is probably the earliest, um, you know, not counting Mickey, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, and, and Oswald, this is probably the earliest, uh, Disney characters that still have a presence today, you know, like the, it would be a pretty deep cut for the trees from flowers and trees to like show up in, you know, some kind of ride or park show or, you know, anything more than just a background character. But it's, it's nice to see that the legacy of the three little pigs is sort of still something that Disney carries on. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I find interesting with this specifically, as you pointed out, the Hayes Code, that was just kind of starting to develop um, at this point in time with the film industry as a whole, but a lot of it came down to cartoons because so many of them were a little bit uh, subversive in nature. Um, So I recommend to any listeners the book Wild Minds, The Artists and Rivalries That Inspired the Golden Age of Animation by Reed Mittenbuehler. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing the name. Um, But it told this really interesting story about how these different figures came to prominence. And specifically, one of the reasons that Three Little Pigs got so huge was because the Hays Code was promoting it. Because the biggest rival studio was putting out Betty Boop, which was an extremely sexual character at this point in time. 
And so they were trying to promote the idea that you could have more family-friendly media that didn't need insane amounts of sex or violence. This was actually praised by actors, animators, and even politicians of the time. And that was part of what made it just so huge for Disney. Um, it just kind of found that perfect cultural moment where it got promoted by absolutely everyone for both the deeper messages and just the fact that it wasn't quite as risque as some of the other things going on. Um, and obviously that got significantly better once they removed the anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes. But one of the things that we also see, and this is also going to kind of define Disney, is that it ended up being an example of a problem in the film industry that still exists today. With so much critical and popular success, everyone wanted Disney to continue the saga of the pigs. And he did, begrudgingly, with sequels like The Big Bad Wolf, Three Little Wolves, The Practical Pig, and The Thrifty Pig. But Walt Disney knew to keep moving forward, announcing a phrase that became a pretty common thread at Disney. You can't top pigs with pigs. He was certain that the secret to success was growth and change, not repetition, and his later advancements proved that he was right. You can't top pigs with pigs. Yeah, so supposedly he had that uh, made into a sign on his desk at one point, um, which is which is great. I love that. <laughs> and it, it's so true. And, you know, again, w watching every time I watch this one, I'm always impressed. And just about how you could put it alongside many of the Looney Tunes uh, shorts and, and later shorts. And I think it holds up, you know, uh, holds its own among even later uh, animated things. Um, and it is when I, until putting uh, the notes together for this show, I never made the connection that like Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies are uh, like themselves a take and kind of, you know, a sort of like an elbow push against silly symphonies that they're, they all have that mm -hmm. same naming structure, uh, which is very, just very fun. And again, just speaks to the influence of, you know, Disney at this time. Yeah, there's definitely, I think they all had to kind of mock each other. And there's many examples of, you know, just different enough to not be a copyright violation mockeries of Mickey Mouse that were put out by other studios to kind of mock Disney. Um, but it just was that much of a cultural force. I mean, for the first several years, aside from winning the Academy Awards, you know, it was either the only options or two of three nominees. Disney was so critical that you really couldn't put out your own version without acknowledging that you were working off of the base that Disney created. Yeah, and these are the first two, uh, you know, nominations and wins for Disney at the Oscars, but he still holds the record for the most individual nominations of anybody in the history of the Academy Awards, um, which is also very interesting when you pair it with the fact that no Disney-released film has ever won Best Picture. Um, so yeah. they're, you know, they're mostly for animated shorts, some for live action shorts, um, with some of the nature documentaries and stuff. And, you know, he got special Oscars that we'll talk about as time goes on. But it's just an interesting bit of point that, you know, he, there was all this success, but it's still capped at that level of, you know, I, 
Mary Poppins was the first uh, feature nominated for the Oscar. And, you know, as as seen in Saving Mr. Banks, Walt was pretty disappointed that it didn't <laughs> didn't end up winning. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, what what are your thoughts overall on The Three Little Pigs? I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think that despite the fact that they took out the, the critically uh, anti-Semitic scene, you could still see threads of that throughout it. So it's definitely a product of its time. And that should be acknowledged um, that, you know, as much as it became kind of a, a rallying cry, it was exploitative in ways. But I think other than that, it had a, you know, it, was a good narrative. The images were all great. I love the fact that the pigs are literally all the same pig, um, but so very different at the same time that, you know, you could throw them into a different thing and you would know immediately which one was which. Um, I think it's just, you know, for, for such a simple story, the, the level of detail and sincerity is just really remarkable, especially for this time. Yeah, and I I did I, I completely agree, um, and I did make time to watch uh, the Big Bad Wolf follow up because I was like, let's watch at least one of these sequels while I have ten minutes, <laughs> and it's a Red Riding Hood retelling, but also the pigs mm-hmm. are in it, so like it's it's a little messy. It it really is a huge a huge step down from from the original, and you can see that like. You know, it sort of feels half-hearted at times, and it is a lot more basic. And you know, other than the addition of the pigs, it it, it doesn't really innovate on the Red Riding Hood story as much as you know. The this feels like a distinct version of the Three Little Pigs tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there. You know, some sequels can be great. I and I I. I will get uh, in trouble for this, but I think that Back to the Future 2 is better than the first one. Everyone disagrees with me on that. You know, obviously we have examples like Star Wars and and The Godfather where sequels really are, you know, amazing. But I think that here, possibly the big thing was Walt had given up on it. Walt knew that The Three Little Pigs was good and wanted to move forward. And without his special brand of magic kind of tying the sequels together, I think they ended up being kind of, you know, half-hearted because he just didn't think that they needed to go on. Yeah, and, and I think the you know, his attitude at this time largely was, okay, what worked about the Three Little Pigs conceptually and how can we bring that into the next thing that we're going to do as opposed to just, you mm-hmm. know, diminishing returns of and again you really can't say it better than you can't top pigs with pigs um (laughs) yeah i wonder if he he sat up all night and just thought about the exact phrasing of that just to come in the next day and yell at the first person to ask him for a sequel (laughs) you know he's talking to lillian and and he's he's like workshopping it with her and uh you know he like says it and he gets a good laugh he's like i gotta remember that uh Um, you can't top wolves with the pit. No, you you can't top. You can't make better wolves out of. Wo- you can't make pigs out of. I've got it. You can't top pigs with pigs. Yeah, I think that uh, I I would love to learn more about Lillian because it, you know, she was actually uh, one of the inkers 
at his previous company helping work for him. She had that artistic mindset and creativity. And I would just love to see how much their interplay really played into all of this, especially as uh, as we're moving into the next short, uh, Tortoise and the Hare, 1935. They had a kid. By that point, uh, their daughter, uh, I believe... Uh, oh, man, I know what her name is. Give me <laughs> yeah, one take second. Your time. Yeah, take your time. Um, their daughter, Diane Marie. I was thinking Daisy. Uh, their daughter, Diane Marie, had been born in uh, 1935. No, sorry, 1933. So by that point, she was, you know walking around and and maybe you know speaking to some extent and he really was starting to go in this world where his family was critical and i do think it's interesting to see maybe some slight changes from some of the you know dad is is a, a chain of sausages that we see um in uh the three little pigs to some of the slightly more family friendly things that we'll see in those next couple of shorts we're gonna talk about yeah, and I think one of the things uh, you know with with this podcast that we're we're trying to do is is not it's not to take credit away from Walt, but really to highlight the other collaborators who made all of this possible, like Lillian, like of iWorks, um, like the like uh, Wilfred Jackson, the director of Tortoise and the Hare that we're going to talk about. Um, you know, like the Three Little Pigs, this is adapted from a folktale. Uh, this yeah, you know, the Tortoise and the Hare is an Aesop fable. Um, this stars Max Hare, also known as the Blue Streak, facing off against to- Toby Tortoise in a race. You know, and again, it's the same idea where we're going to take the familiar story structure, we're going to sort of modernize it, do our own twist on it. Um, so instead of just taking a nap and losing the race, Max is distracted by a school full of young bunnies and spend, spends much of the time in the short showing off his talents in various sports. You know, meanwhile, uh, Toby in a very cartoon turtle fashion that sort of becomes a standard depiction of turtles uh, extends his neck or his limbs to sort of keep his steady pace. So if he's like running over uneven ground, his legs will go like he's got like suspension, I guess. So like his legs will like dip down, uh, you know, or his neck will extend out in order to keep himself steady. Um, and all that, you know, of course, proves key in his, you know, spoilers, his victory over <laughs> the hair. Um so Wilfred Jackson directed this. He had been with the studio as far back as Steamboat Willie in 1928. Um, this wasn't even the first Silly Symphony that he had directed. Um, and then he also directed The Band Concert, a Mickey cartoon from uh, also from 1935, which we'll be talking about in this episode. Uh, among the others in the studio, uh, Wilfred Jackson had the reputation of being a perfectionist. So he had become a sequence director. Um, so later he became a sequence director mean that he was directing sections of different animated feature films, overseeing all the animation that would go for that part of the movie, uh, including Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio, Cinderella, and Peter Pan. Um, in Fantasia, he was responsible for the Night on Bald Mountain sequence, um, which I can't wait to talk about because that is amazing. <laughs> it's an incredible sequence. Um, you know, and he was also responsible for all of the cartoon and combination live action footage. Uh, so whenever animation appears in Song of the South, he was responsible for that animation. Um, 
And then in the 1950s, he made the transition with Walt Disney to television and produced for the Disneyland series until he retired in 1961. So he is one of these guys who was really with Disney the whole step of the way for the first 30 years of the studio. Um, And Jackson also recognized that the, the development of the Disney characters and how they were drawn was sort of limited by the talents of the animation department itself. So you can only do as well as your sort of worst animator. So the way that he said it was, our model sheet has to reach a common denominator of the animators you've got. If you make a thing so complex that only one of your animators can draw it properly, you're in trouble. As the capability of the team, the whole crew generally grew. The quality of the drawings and the characters, the complexity, it was all able to grow. So the tortoise and the hare sort of represents a midpoint between you know, the Oswald shorts, the early Mickey Mouse shorts, and then eventually when we get to Snow White and the feature length stuff. Because one of the things that was sort of going on in the background of this time, you know, was Walt was starting to train people to become animators, like really beef up their drawing skills, sending them to life figure drawing classes, you know, the now starting to get, you know, the, the Experienced animators were, were teaching the newer people, you know, how to draw correctly and how to animate correctly. Um, and, um, you know, and the story department also continued at this time. Um, you know, Wilford Jackson describes it as, you know, a big pitch meeting. And then the people who were maybe better at pitching ideas than they were at drawing, which is sort of, you know, the the Walt Disney of iWorks kind of dynamic, where Walt was more of the, you know, he could draw, but he was more of the ideas man. Of iWorks was much stronger uh, in creating the characters and drawing and doing the animation itself. And so that's part of how the story department came over. So if you were better at story and jokes and that kind of thing, you were probably going to gravitate towards being in the story department. And if you were better at drawing, then you'd, you know, you get more and more jobs doing, you know, key animation on the main characters in these shorts. Um, you know, the, the big thing here, you know, the, Tourist in the Hair isn't isn't as interesting. It doesn't quite have the legacy of Three Little Pigs. Um, but there is some innovation here. The, the big one is the blue streak effect. That is the uh, Max's sort of signature when he runs at full, full speed. Um, and this was the first time that a single scene was drawn, inked, and painted as a test run for Walt's approval before anything else. So it was basically like... We have this special effect, you know, it's, it's like Jurassic Park with like the first computer animation of the dinosaurs where they're like, okay, we're trying this out. We're not sure if it's going to work. You know, we need to show it to Walt so that he can sign off on it before we do anything else. Um, but, you know, again, they, you know, and the first test, Walt was like, nope, you got to change it, made adjustments. And it took a couple of tries, which really shows how invested Walt was in really getting the stuff right and really trying to push, push things forward and get things to look the way that he wanted. Sorry. Um, Yeah. So one of the things that I want to make sure to draw attention to here is just how much detail was involved in the creation of these different slides. Now, generally speaking, cartoons of this era had only a few real characters, and that's definitely something that we've seen in the other shorts we've talked about. I mean, again, there's three pigs that are all identical and a wolf. 
in uh, the tortoise and the hare, we actually see that changing a little bit because while the tortoise and the hare are kind of the only main characters, there are a lot of people doing different things with different appearances throughout, but especially in the beginning and those last couple of shots. Now you've got to keep in mind, this was entirely hand-drawn, and a cartoon of this length would have crucial scenes drawn by the animators, minor scenes drawn by in-betweeners, and then the full story would be put together by inkers who carefully outlined and colored in the characters. And to have so many distinctly different characters moving in different ways, each drawn a frame at a time on the cells, would have taken an incredible amount of time and talent. Um, the, the exception to this, of course, is uh, Max's um, suitors, uh, let's say. Um, his, his fan club. Yeah. Um, his fan club is exactly the same. They are all literally the same design. Most of them move in exactly the same movements. And it was hilarious to me because it reminded me of Gaston's uh, suitors, his, his uh, fan club in Beauty and the Beast, all those years later, we have the three identical girls, except I think they have different colored dresses. Uh, and I, I do wonder if that was a bit of a, a mockery of their early work, that they uh, felt the need to kind of joke that, oh yeah, you have identical characters doing exactly the same things. Um, but while that definitely happened in this one, you've also got, you know, multiple different, I believe, uh, snails as the tortoise is moving and they're all going in different directions and different shapes. And uh, the crowd at the beginning, we, we see the stands are just kind of one set image. But then as they zoom in, we see probably uh, a few dozen different characters, some of them waving, some of them clapping, some of them, you know, handling flags. And this is one area where we can see the importance of women in Disney's early days. Because the Disney employment brochures were extremely clear. Women do not do any of the creative work in connection with preparing the cartoons for the screen. Now that's something that's going to change, and we'll be talking about that more in later sections, um, because a few women, at least, became major, major players in the development of Disney's kind of classic uh, look. But at the time, the only jobs they were allowed to take was the inking and the painting. Even so, they were a critical part of making sure that all of these details and movement came together so seamlessly. So they're kind of the unsung heroes that really made it so that these grand ideas and a few, you know, well-done sketches by the high-ranking animators were able to become such a kind of in-depth and interesting um, short here. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted that because, you know, when, when you think of early animation, that's that's not Disney. So, you know, th some of the Betty Boop stuff, some of the early Popeye stuff, some of the stuff that, like, doesn't even have, like, character characters. Like, when you have a crowd scene, like, the characters are all just sort of bouncing in rhythm together and they're all sort of moving in the same way in the same rhythm and here all of the characters that do move with the exception of the bunnies that are you know watching max hair and his feats of athletic ability uh yeah 
like you said, some of them are waving, some of them are cheering, some of them are waving flags. Like they are, they they have various actions, which gives it a much more dynamic feel, makes it feel more alive. Um, you know, and I'm also that I'm also glad that you highlighted the um, the the ink and paint uh, girls as they were known at the time, because the crest the 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 quality of their work is so important to the way that these shorts look uh, and the way that the animation looked and the high quality of it is really a testament to both the animators doing the drawings and the inkers and painters finishing them and making them, you know, consistent throughout making just knowing how, you know, just from trying to paint walls in a house, you know, trying to get color consistent and knowing how many coats to use and the right brush strokes and everything. It's really, it's really intricate work here. Uh, and without their talents, there's no way that these would look as good as they do. Yeah, I was actually reading an article about them that was fascinating. And it said that they were probably the most taken advantage of, but also the most self-controlled people in the entire company because they described that they couldn't have coffee. Uh, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't do various uh, drugs that were available at the time um, because they were worried that it would cause their hands to shake. So their job was so, you know, almost surgeon level uh, specific that they had to control their entire lives to make sure that they could give that level of detail. Whereas the animators could kind of do whatever they wanted as long as they eventually got a couple of good drawings. Um, you know, these women had to do thousands upon thousands of them with perfect line work every time. And it's just, you know, I, I don't think we, I don't think most people really understand how much work went into hand-drawn animation. But it's just absolutely remarkable, and especially as we go into the feature-length uh, uh, animations, it's, it's just remarkable how many people, how many hours of time, and just how many uh, cells or, or slides had to be done to get this movie that nowadays, I mean, CGI and, and some of the tools that we have have made it so that, you know, you draw one character a couple different directions and then you can kind of just hit a button and their arm waves, you know? So I think it's it's just so critical to talk about how complicated and insane it was for them to do all of this detail work so successfully so many times. Yeah, and when you see videos of them doing it and they're just like like moving a brush and it, it's almost like you can't even see their hand move and it's just this perfect, very even like swap of color you know because mm -hmm. the way that cartoons are supposed to look there's not really gradients you know it's like it's not shading so much as like this thing is this color blue and the thing next to it is yellow and you know it's very uh like the colors are, are sort of are separated in a way but the you know and the the shade of each has to match from cell to cell otherwise you're going to see it in the final product it'll look like it's you know uneven and it'll jump out. It'll really jump out at you. Um, especially with the, uh, with the background characters, just as much as with everybody in the foreground. Um, the, so the next short on the list is also, um, from, 
1935. I don't know the Academy uh, eligibility rules at this time or what they what they were, uh, but this was also technically released in 1935. It's also the, the first short uh, in this program to be directed by Dave Hand. Um, he was an animator before he came to the Disney Studios. Disney recruited him in 1930, um, and he became the third uh, director after uh, Gillette and Jackson. Uh, so he's like Walt's sort of like third lead guy uh, at this point. Um, and so Dave Han goes on to direct Snow White. So obviously we'll be talking about more more about him in the next episode. Um, you know, and, and this is a little bit different from some of the other shorts that we've talked about so far. Um, Three Orphan Kittens is not especially story focused. Um, this was really done as a training program for all of these new animators that Disney had been taking on, sort of staffing up with the idea of making Snow White and just the level of, you know, shorts that they were putting out year over year. Um, and this was really focused on creating characters. And so the three nameless kittens in this, like, do have fairly distinct personalities, um, you know, and like it almost feels like this was an experiment of like, how cute can we make a kitten? Like how cute can you draw a kitten? Um, and like the other experiment here is that the kittens are what I would say are lightly anthropomorphized uh, as opposed to the tortoise and the hare and the pigs and the big bad wolf that, you know, walk on two legs, use their uh, four, what the animals, four legs become arms and hands and things. Um, these, these kittens look like cats, you know, they look like real cats. Um, you know, they have obviously very anthropomorphized facial expressions and some features, but they're really going for, um, you know, that more realistic style. Um, this one also is not on Disney plus, uh, it is fairly easily, uh, findable on YouTube. Um, and, my guess as to why it's not on Disney Plus is to what Disney likes to refer uh, to as a quote unquote outdated cultural depiction. Um, there is a human character that appears uh, in in this short, uh, who's a African American housekeeper working in the homes that the kittens have, the orphan kittens have found themselves in. She speaks in a very stereotypical and exaggerated accent. Um, there's also a doll that shouts "Mammy" at one of the kittens. Uh, that moment was edited from the film before the short was aired on television in the 50s and 60s. But the um, the housekeeper character it just appears too often for it to be fully removed. They'd have to re basically remake the entire short uh, to remove that character. Um, you know, it was on the... Uh, the Walt Disney Treasures DVD of the Silly, Silly Symphonies, but that was like a collector-aimed product. Uh, that whole line of DVDs, they came in like fancy like tins, and then inside was the actual like plastic DVD case, and they would usually have like a bunch of different extras and things, and um, you know, uh, special features from like film historians, and, and again, very much focused on adult collectors who would, you know, not be influenced necessarily by. Uh, these kinds of stereotypes. Yeah, I think that it's it's complicated because while obviously there are a lot of things wrong with that depiction, things that are not appropriate for especially children to be watching today, uh, and these cultural ideas that we absolutely don't want to pass on, it was extremely well received in its own time. 
so, you know, it won the Academy Award for Best Cartoon, as we know. Uh, it also earned a sequel, which was, you know, lovingly titled More Kittens. Um, and it was really just a sign of how far Disney had come. I mean, Disney's success was hard won, and while it seemed clear in the 30s, and while, you know, looking back today at, it's not quite, but at, in the year of the 100th anniversary, you know, we kind of can't think of a world where Disney didn't succeed. But he had tried and failed repeatedly. He could not get a job, he could not sell his uh, original cartoons, he could not sell his early animation, he was hemorrhaging money and so it's really interesting to see that by the time he was finally able to find the right set of creative minds and the right training for the job which we'll talk about a little bit more later this short kind of proved that even while the company's attention was directed toward other projects as that year uh had plenty of mickey mouse shorts and they were thinking about snow white for several years in advance their simplest projects, because this is a fairly simple one, were still far and away more advanced than the other cartoons around. In fact, Disney didn't lose the Academy Award for Best Cartoon until 1940. And even after that, they still won the vast majority of them for decades on. So even what might not have been the most uh, elaborate, story-driven, or technically, uh, short was still seen as significantly better than what other people were putting out despite their many attempts and even successes at stealing away Disney's uh, top animators and trying to kind of steal the techniques as soon as they saw them finding success. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, watching watching this, it's it's totally... Other than the, um, you know, cultural aspect of it, of course, it, it's totally fine. It's very cute. It's very watchable. But, you know, it there isn't anything to point to it that makes it unique. But I think that is a really great, um, a really great thing to highlight around, especially as we get into the later 30s and they're starting to work on the features that, again, this is, they're experimenting with different things. They're training people up. They're um, really playing around with how do we, what what different styles can we use? Uh, what different kinds of stories can we tell? And keeping the story simple really allows the animators working on this project to focus on those characters because they're not doing an elaborate, you know, as many storyboards and things. They're really trying to bring the personalities of the characters to the forefront as much as they can without resorting to total anthropomorphization. Um, you know, I think this really points the way to the animal characters in Snow White. Um, you know, that are, you know, again, what I would call lightly anthropomorphized where, you know, they have human facial expressions and things, but, you know, the birds still are bird sized and, you know, the, the deer look like deer. They're not, you know, wearing clothes and, or at least shirts, uh, in the case of the pigs. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see them develop as you were saying. Yeah, I think that you can definitely see early kind of e experimentation, I think, is is just the, the word of the decade. The 30s were experimentation and seeing, do we need animal characters? 
what happens if we put humans into it? Because that wasn't something that was really done that often. I mean, even, you know, Betty Boop and, and Popeye, who were around at this point, weren't human exactly. <laughs> um, they were just kind of the human-y, cartoony figures that, uh, you know, we kind of accept as human, but they're nothing like you know, the Disney princesses and, and other characters, especially in modern days, that look like people. I mean, they're not Uncanny Valley quite yet, but they're they're very realistic in, you know, proportions and anatomy in a lot of ways. So I think this experimentation period, even if some of the shorts aren't super exciting to us, was absolutely critical to getting to some of these, you know, home runs that we're going to talk about in the next couple of episodes. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's a great point about the human characters, you know, because Betty Boop and Popeye are definitely sort of what I think of as like comic strip characters where like they're drawn mm-hmm. in a certain way. You can recognize them from like across the room because they are very shape oriented. And even when they move in those cartoons, they're not trying to move in a realistic way. Whereas the human characters in this, which we mostly see from like, you know, the uh, ankles down are, you know, they, they feel like they, you can tell they're meant to be real humans versus a like Mm -hmm. cartoonized human. Um, You know, and then again, as you mentioned, uh, Disney also won the cartoon short Oscar the next year uh, in 1936 with the country cousins, um, which similar to Three Orphan Kittens, it was mainly designed as a way for, you know, Disney's artists and animators to take identical looking characters and give them personality and life based just on their movement and behavior rather than the character design. So again, it, it's kind of that thing of like, okay, you know, can we still do this with like one arm time behind our back where we're going to have, you know, just through the movement, just through, like, how can we create personality in the simplest way and still have it come through? Um, you know, this is based on the Town Mouse, Country Mouse, Aesop Fable as well. Also directed by Wolfred Jackson. Um, there's almost no dialogue in this. And it really tells the story just through the imagery, the music, and the sound design. And so having a simple story, again, really lets them focus on, you know, what are the tools that we have at our disposal? How can we use sound? How can we use color? How can we use music uh, to really tell the story you know, and so the plot is simple, but they're using all these other things to tell the story. To me, it, it's pretty enjoyable. It's kind of fun that they're like trying out different mouse designs other than Mickey, because Mickey <laughs> has a very distinct look where, again, these guys are a little bit more, you know, human-like than the kittens, uh, but they still look, I mean, they're, they're kind of closer to Jerry, I guess, uh, than they are to Mickey. Yeah, Mickey's not, you know, if I saw a little Mickey Mouse running around my house, I think I'd be concerned by the little, like, demon creature. I wouldn't think it was a mouse. So so definitely the, um, the Country Cousins was a little bit more like what actually you might see running around in a field or, or you know, your house if you have uh, an unfortunate rodent problem. Um, but I think that one of the things that's really interesting with this one is that it's important to keep in mind that Walt Disney was completely obsessed with watching the competition. So he would, you know, he would fly to New York to negotiate with studios 
and just casually steal other studios' best workers. He would watch every single animation uh, short that came out, whether that meant having to travel or just seeing it, seeing the things that appeared nationwide, and going, hmm, I think that everything we've done is better than this, except I like the way that they use angles. So I'm going to make sure that our angles are better than anybody else's next time. I mean, he brought sound to cartoons, he brought color to cartoons, and some of his competitors argued that his success was just a function of using that technology rather than actual skill. And while there's certainly something to be said for the ingenuity to use the available technologies, it was really more about mindset. At Disney, all new employees, and even many longtime employees, had to go to art school. Uh, and even if they weren't technically going to an art school, uh, Disney set up his own art school with night classes that they could take in art history, in realism, as well as working at the studio. And this wasn't seen as, you know, mandatory extra work, but as a way to really grow as a creative. And that's why so many other studios were trying to poach his workers, because nobody else focused on training their artists as much as Disney did. In addition, they were encouraged to take breaks when they needed to. Disney saw his employees as artists that he was responsible for getting the best out of. And that mindset, when most other studios just wanted to get as much quantity out in as little time as possible, meant that even on a project like The Country Cousins, uh, where the uh, structure was nothing really revolutionary, the technique was better than anything anyone else had to offer because Disney was watching what others did and made sure that he was always one step ahead, even on what might otherwise be called a pretty simplistic idea. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little more in depth at some point, but that, that mindset leads into the formation of CalArts, which is still the you know most prominent, like if you want to study animation for college, like that's where you go. Um, you know, and it all that really came out of Disney needing the best people to make the best animation. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also at this time, to your point, animation is kind of a small world and these guys all knew each other more or less. And so there was this sort of personal pride, I feel like, as well as the company pride in turning out the best stuff. Um, so those were the five shorts that were included in um, the Academy Award review of Walt Disney cartoons. Those were the ones that won the first five Academy Awards for cartoons. Um, that package still only ran just over 40 minutes, so it barely qualifies as a feature. Um, and I think they give a good overview of Disney's output in the 1930s, but it's a, it's a little bit incomplete. Obviously, there's a ton more of their output that we're not going to talk about. But I wanted to make sure that we talk about at least one more Mickey Mouse cartoon because we won't talk about him again until, like, he's only going to show up a handful of times in this entire podcast project. Um, you know, Fantasia, Fun and Fancy Free, um, and then not really again all the way up until Roger Rabbit. Um, so I really wanted to make sure that we take a little bit of extra time to talk about Mickey. Um and so there's two more shorts that are really integral to getting to Snow White. Um, the first of both, both are directed by Wilfred Jackson. The first that I want to talk about is the band concert, which is always also from 1935. Um, 
it's it's well regarded and, and acclaimed. It's one of the best known Mickey shorts, um, and it's the first Mickey. It's it was the first Mickey cartoon that was in color, um, and it's also a change in tone. It's a little bit closer to this sort of silly symphony music driven you know, less so on the gags, even though they're still definitely there. You know, it's it's more jokey than I think any of the silly symphonies that we've really talked about. Um, but it, it does have a stronger story than a lot of the earlier Mickey cartoons. Um, you know, Mickey is trying to conduct the band through William Tell's Overture, and the newly introduced duck, later named Donald, uh, creates chaos around him. They're trying to play William Tell. He's pulling out flutes from... God knows where to play Turkey in the Straw. Uh, And then they get to the storm section of William Tell and a tornado comes through uh, in a whole sequence. And that's really, you know, that's, that's the plot of this, but I wanted to make sure that we included it because it's, it's not only because it's one of my favorites, but I do think it it is actually really remarkable. Yeah. I think that this is, you know, one of those shorts that's really important to mention, as you said, it's, kind of funny looking at the hundreds of films we're going to be discussing that Mickey Mouse almost never shows up. And this is just a great way to show the ambition that was happening across the studio. They had Mickey Mouse. It was set at this point. You know, it was it was still growing, but they had pretty much established Mickey Mouse as a big fe- uh, figure. But they kept pushing. You know, with its focus on characters, set pieces, and music, it feels like a fusion of the gag-driven Mickey Mouse shorts that originally began and those silly symphonies. And, you know, it really took its time. And that's not to say that it was poorly paced as much as it was savoring. It was putting all of those details in. And like The Three Little Pigs or the final film we're going to be discussing today, it's kind of a slow burn building with some repetition into this completely over-the-top finale when the tornado hits and everything just kind of goes insane. Yeah, and, and re-watching it, the tornado sequence where the Mickey is sort of in the center, still conducting the band, and the band members are going around him, and they're changing angles as they go around him. Like, it, it feels three-dimensional, even though it's obviously a flat drawing. Uh, and it's just so impressive that the characters are tumbling end over end and moving in a circle, um, you know, and just thinking about the work to go into mapping that all out and tracking the motion of the characters as they move around through, you know, every cell of animation. It's just it's just really impressive. Um, you know, Leonard Malton, who is obviously a film critic, but also uh an eminent Disney scholar really um, says that the band concert represents quote, the pinnacle of Mickey's career as a short subject star. Um, You know, here Mickey gets to show a lot more personality. Um, You know, he's, you can see that he's frustrated, you know, he's trying to do this good thing by putting on this concert, but he keeps, you know, things keep going wrong and he gets more and more frustrated, which gives him a lot more nuance than he had before where he was just sort of reacting to things happening around him. Um, Les Clark was the animator for Mickey on this short. Uh, his work is incredible. And then of course the, you know, this introduces Donald Duck and really sets up that sort of friendly slash antagonistic relationship between Mickey and Donald, uh, which goes on to be, you know, a core 
aspect of both of their of you know of their relationship and of anything to do with Mickey Mouse all the way up through the newest stuff that they're putting out today. Um, you know, and going forward, many of the Mickey Mouse shorts would feature Mickey, Donald, and Goofy as often as they would be a sort of solo Mickey cartoon. And, you know, especially as we get into the later 40s and 50s, it's like Pluto is almost the star more than Mickey by the time you get to sort of the end of the golden age of uh, animated shorts. And so the band concert feels essential. It's on Disney Plus. Absolutely worth checking out. And then you know, in terms of its legacy within the company specifically, um, there are uh, two uh, theme park attractions that specifically call back to the band concert. There are the Silly Symphony Swings, uh, a Disney California adventure, which plays the music from this. And, you know, it's a, a very classic, you know, the uh, chairs are on chains and they spin around and, and you swing out. Um, but it all the design is referencing the short and then Mickey's Magic in Florida also has Mickey in this, in the same sort of band leader uh, kind of outfit. Yeah. I think that this is, you know, it did so many kind of big things, like you said, bringing kind of the Mickey mouse ensemble together um, because, you know, Mickey is critical and it's, so, somewhat impossible to to overstate the importance of Mickey Mouse to Disney. Uh, but just like we don't want Walt Disney to be the only face of the Disney Corporation, you know, bringing in Donald and evolving with Goofy and with Pluto, you know, was such an important thing and something that's kind of great to see in here. Um, but one of the other... Just fun facts. I know we're uh, running a bit long at this point, but one more fun fact about Mickey Mouse is that the animators often modeled Mickey explicitly off of Walt Disney. So when they were struggling with how to get a line read or how to put an expression on the face of the mouse, uh, they might go up to him and have him act it out or have him, you know, say the lines. And he didn't necessarily uh, love that uh not because he didn't want to be seen as a cartoon but because he didn't think he deserved to be mickey's kind of base um but i think it's kind of interesting because in many ways you know we've talked about all of these critical directors and technology and musical scores that made up these early years of disney and perhaps the thing that walt disney brought in most other than his you know, appreciation for art training and his kind of inspiration of the directors and animators was that his personality ended up being part of their characters moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, I think it's worth taking the time to talk about all this stuff now because it, like you said, it becomes such an integral part of the company moving forward. And, you know, if we think of ways, we will we will certainly find ways to sneak Mickey more into this podcast as, as we go <laughs> along if we can. Um, but the, the final short that we're going to talk about today is uh, the Oscar winner for 1937. Uh, so it came out after the original release of the Academy Award review of Walt Disney cartoons, uh, which is The Old Mill. Um, released just a few months before Snow White. It's a landmark for a number of reasons and is really important to talk about bef as before we talk about Snow White. Um, so 
this has a big, te- a couple of big technical innovations to it. Uh, the first one is the invention of the multiplane camera. Uh, so the multiplane camera allows different pieces of artwork. Um, so the background, the characters, the 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 midground, the foreground, uh, they are all done on separate pieces of transparency or glass and placed at various distances from the camera. And so when a camera is moved closer or further away, there's an effect of creating of there's an effect created of moving forward or back backward through three dimensional space. Um, so it's kind of like it, it gives another it gives a sense of depth that was previously lacking from cartoons in general. Um, the first known multiplane camera was invented by a German silhouette animator, uh, Lotta Reiniger, for her animated feature *The Adventures of Prince Ahmed*, which came out all the way back in 1926. And then the first American version was invented by uh, of iWorks in 1933. And then Fleischer Studios actually had a similar device that involved miniatures as well as drawn animation. Um, so the idea had sort of been around, um, but William Garrity, who was a sound engineer, invented a version for Disney that had two major innovations over these previous multiplane cameras. So one, the camera was oriented vertically, so the lens was pointing down to the floor, uh, which allowed up to seven layers to be used at once. So this way you could slide the glass plates in parallel to the floor, which meant that the, the whole setup took up less space. Um, as like space in the studio was always at a premium. So instead of having um, the camera pointed, you know, parallel to the floor, like if you're taking somebody's picture and you have to line up all the glass planes in a row, orienting it vertically made the whole thing take up a lot less space and allowed for more layers. And it was a lot easier to slide the glass in and out horizontally uh, versus vertically. Um, you know, and it was less wobbly, things moved around a lot less. Um, so it was a huge step forward. Um, and then the, uh, this invention, Garrity's design was actually used from the production of Old Mill in 1937, all the way through the Little Mermaid in 1989, where it was replaced with a computerized version called Caps that we will talk about several years from now. Um, but the fact that this design lasted for 42 years, it's just an amazing, it just shows you how, I think that speaks to how innovative it was because Disney in this environment of innovation, if they thought of a way to improve it, they, they would have, and I'm sure they made adjustments over the years, but the basic design lasted 42 years. Yeah. And with it being that successful of a design, unsurprisingly, this edition actually made the old mill the first short where Disney was specifically recognized for their technical accomplishments. Um, While, you know, the addition of color and many of these uh, developments they had were honored when they won Best Cartoon, uh, this specific Disney short and Disney as a company actually won a scientific and technical class two plaque from the Academy Awards. The only other winner of this award that was associated with cartoons at the time was given to Disney's technical partner, Technicolor. So really, Disney, you know, both in practice and in, you know, presence in the critical world, was on the absolute cutting edge of technology every time, winning these awards that were very, very rarely given out because they were given out explicitly for things that fundamentally changed the film industry. And this camera was absolutely one of the ways that that 
that the whole industry was disrupted and, you know, made better. It had more depth. It had more speed at some of the animation. It took up less space. And Disney really finally got acknowledged for that with this uh, special award. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing that's really cool about the old mill is it really feels like a bridge between the silly symphonies and what they do later in Fantasia in a few years. Um, you know, the multiplane camera obviously also made Snow White possible because the backgrounds in that and the different layers and, you know, we'll talk about all that, about all that in our next episode, but on a technical level, it's really important for Snow White on an artistic level. It's really important and points to Fantasia. Um, the story here is just a storm sort of acting upon an abandoned old mill, uh, and the animals who live there and similar to, um, the, uh, three orphan kittens, you know, this is in that style of animal that we were talking about where they, you know, the owl looks like a real owl. Uh, you know, he's not wearing a waistcoat or having a pocket watch. Like he just looks like a regular owl. You know, there are rats and bats and other birds and frogs, and they are, you know, cartoon depictions of somewhat realistic animals that, and they, the designs look similar to those that do populate all of these early, uh, you know, especially the princess movies, I guess. Um, and so, you know, the, um, you know, Walt had sort of conceived it as merely a, 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 oh, we're going to demonstrate this new camera that we invented. And Wilford Jackson was like, no, let's, let's do something. Um, you know, and the way that Jackson describes it is like an artistic rather than cartoon like, you know, and he's he's saying that he's like, I don't want to down, you know, downplay cartoons. Like he's like, I love cartoons. They're great. But you know, it's, it's something that really paved the way for Fantasia in terms of elevating the medium into doing something new. That wasn't just gag driven. Like this is really, you know, I would say that the only one of these that we're talking about today, that's sort of driven by emotion. You, you feel for, the animals and, you know, like the band concert and the three little pigs and flowers and trees, it is kind of a slow burn, but it's a world of difference from flowers and trees to the old mill in terms of the way that the animal characters are depicted, the, just the scale of the storm that they put together, you know, it's kind of a mood piece. Um, you know, I think it sometimes shows up in some of the various Disney Halloween programming they do over the years. Cause it does have kind of a, a spooky feel and the storm kind of has a, a sinister feel to it. Um, you know, and it's, it, it's suspenseful, which is not something that we often associate with the silly symphonies or Mickey cartoons at this time. Um, the other, the other technical thing I, I want to highlight, uh, just really quickly is there was a new department at the studio. So Cy Young, Dan McManus, George Rowley, and Ugo de Orsi and a couple other people form a special effects department to work on the old mill. So previously things like lightning, fire, and water were done by the same animators who were doing all the other stuff in the cartoons. Um, but this gave them a varied sense of style. And so while they were making this transition to working on features, this special effects team created sort of a standard look so that like lightning is always going to look like like lightning water is always going to look like water if we're going to do these things in a realistic way let's become experts at doing realistic fire animation um 
and so just artistically aesthetically there's you know i really like watching this one it's super fascinating um and it you know it actually won the two oscars that that we mentioned the animated short film uh you know and megan you mentioned the scientific and technical award as well and i I think it's deserving of both it really to me this is one that really holds up as like you could show this to anyone and tell them that it you know came out uh, a few years ago as opposed to closer to a hundred. And I think, you know, it would, it, it, you could, you could probably trick some people into thinking that this is a lot more recent. Was, was there anything you wanted to add about uh, the old mill? Um, no, I think you kind of covered it. I, you know, I think that, like you said, this was kind of an outlier of what we focused on because that, you know, narrative drive was such a big thing that it's kind of interesting to see these, you know, shorts where they explicitly didn't have, you know, let's do a retelling of this old story, but instead really focused on those techniques. But like you said, they absolutely hold up. Um and they just are are kind of awe-inspiring. I mean, I could show you a live-action film from this same year and then show you this short, and you probably wouldn't think they were from the same year because, you know, live-action film technology was not that great at this moment. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't amazing. And yet, you know, in cartoons, they were doing this amazing art that I think just really kind of outpaces some of the more traditional media that was available at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend it. Um, and so, you know, I recommend watching all of these, but, uh, to me, the, the three little pigs, the band concert and the old mill are my three favorites of the shorts that we've talked about today. Um, you know, and just just as a quick recap, Flowers and Trees, Three Little Pigs, Tortoise in the Hair, The Band Concert, and The Old Mill are all in Disney+. Plus. They all look really good on there. Three Orphan Kittens and The Country Cousins are readily available on YouTube. Uh, so if you have made it all the way through this episode and have not gone to watch those, you know, the whole watching all of uh, all seven of these that we talked about will still take less than an hour and it'll be well worth your time, I think. Absolutely. Uh, So next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, we'll be digging into Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the first ever animated featured film, and one that almost ended Walt Disney's Hollywood career. After all two hours or however long of this uh, building up his career, this one movie nearly ended it all for good. Credited as Disney's Folly, Snow White was about to fundamentally change the cartoon industry for good. Please join us next time. Yeah, and in the meantime, uh, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at dreammindheart and then on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Uh, and Megan, where can people find more of you online? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I'm going to take a pause and you can edit this out. Sure. <laughs> Okay. Um, Yeah, so if anybody wants to connect with uh, me more particularly, 
Uh, I am most accessible on Twitter. So my Twitter account is at Bojarski underscore Meg. Um, and that's where I do the majority of my sharing. I also currently work at Screen Rant. So you can always check out my writer's page, uh, which is linked on my Twitter page, where I talk about all things pop culture, especially some of the kind of big hits of the last couple of decades. So I do a lot of talking about, you know, the Vampire Diaries, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, lots of kind of the supernatural popular hits. Um, and then if you want to hear more of me, uh, I have a short podcast that I hope to bring back from hiatus shortly uh, that is called Needs More Jazz Hands, where we discuss all of the uh, musical episodes of non-musical TV shows and how successfully they kind of intri uh, how successfully they kind of weave in the musical elements uh, to the story at large. So feel free to check me out any of those places. Um, and uh, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd, which is where I'm most active, at Silber, whatever. Uh, and then you can also find my regular writing on moviejohn.com and in the pages of moviejohn's quarterly print zine. Um, and we'll, we'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, thank you all for listening to our first episode. This one is maybe a little bit longer than some of the other ones will be. Although, you know, with the, um, you know, we're sort of in my mind kind of breaking these up into, uh, a series of mini series. And so, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the first five, uh, feature length animation, animated films that Disney put out as sort of the first wave of this, um, you know, and that'll, that'll take us through a lot of the really big and important movies to talk about. So we're going to spend as much time as we can, you know, when we get to some of the later stuff that there's not as much to talk about, those episodes will probably be shorter, but we'll see what happens when we get there. Thanks again for listening. You can email us your thoughts at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at dreammindheart and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. That's the word and spelled out. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as per usual. And a special thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our episode artwork and to Honey Badgers for our theme song.